Welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast, hosted by Johanna Ruddy. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnosis. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversations about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. On this special episode, Taken from our World IBS Day webinar, we hear the presentation from Kate Scarlotta, a world-renowned GI dietitian focused on management of IBS patients with dietary therapies. Kate talks to us about the many different dietary therapies that are evidence-based to help support the management of IBS, celiac disease, and other IBS mimickers. She also gives us important information on screening for ARFID and other potential issues related to dietary therapies and how to achieve happiness and satisfaction with your diet while living with IBS. We hope you enjoy this episode. Um, so let's get started. Okay, so the topic today was myths, mimickers, and the patient journey. So I kind of wanted to start my talk with that lens. And there's certainly some, some diet myths that I'd like to dispel. Um, so we'll review these quickly. Everyone with IBS should follow a low FODMAP diet. Well, the low FODMAP diet has excellent evidence in IBS, but it's not for everyone. Um, so just remember that it's one tool in your extensive toolkit. I'm going to talk in greater detail about the diet, but it doesn't mean that everyone with IBS, even though it can be effective in some people, not everyone, um, will benefit from the low FODMAP diet. The more fiber you eat, the better you feel. Well, you might get that message on TikTok. However, um, for some people, um, adjusting fiber in your diet, depending on the types of fiber that you eat, um, can make you feel better, can move your bowel movements easier, or can make you feel gassy and bloated. So adjusting fiber is um, is personal, and a dietitian or healthcare provider can help you in that area. But upping too much fiber actually can, can make you feel worse. And then diet alone, can it manage GI symptoms in everyone with IBS? Well, I will tell you that diet alone can manage GI symptoms in some patients, but for the majority of the thousands of patients that I've worked with, usually it takes more than just diet alone to manage symptoms. And Dr. Brenner did a great job talking about the uh, various IBS mimickers. I will talk a little bit about how diet may play a role in, in, in some of them that he discussed. And then let's talk a little bit about the patient journey. And just a reminder that even though IBS is not life-threatening, it's a complicated disease that is very disrupting to one's life. And different patients are going to experience different symptoms and have different triggers, which makes it feel somewhat make you feel alone. But you can work with the team collaboratively and feel like you have they have a full plethora of, of, of options and treatments 
and we'll put you in the middle of the treatment um, decision-making so that we can find a treatment that works perfect for you that you want to trial. And remember that no one knows your body better than you. So, so speak up, do not feel embarrassed, share all of your symptoms and concerns with your healthcare provider so they can best really help you. So briefly, when we talk about uh, the different mimickers that Dr. Brenner brought up today, um, when it comes to dietary interventions, often many of these mimickers are actually treated with medications and that or medications will really manage most of the disease or the disorder. And so diet doesn't play a role. Um, the big outlier in that is celiac disease, where a gluten-free diet for life is the diagnosis, and there's really no medications that can offer uh, benefit at this time. Um, bile acid diarrhea, and some of those patients spreading, if they really like fatty foods, spreading that fat out a little bit, but the treatment is primarily a bile acid sequestrant to, to get that bile that, that contributes to the diarrhea. Congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency. Diet alone often warrants a low sucrose, low, low starch diet or a starch modified diet. And that's because this sucrase isomaltase enzyme complex is responsible for digesting all of sucrose and in about 60% of starch. So if an indication for use of sacrosidase is, is available, so the patient has a genetic component of this congenital form of sucrase isomaltase deficiency, sacrosidase is covered, and this will cover sucrose digestion. So usually sucrose modification in the diet with sacrosidase is not indicated. In some patients, because this enzyme complex is also responsible for some of the starch digestion, we need to modify starch digestion because this enzyme does not cover starch. Um, but that's very individual and varies person to person. With small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, as Dr. Brenner mentioned, rifaximin is, is commonly used as the treatment modality. But patients are always seeking additional benefit from diet. And I can tell you in clinical practice, modifying fermentable carbohydrates can help some people, but there's no evidence for a diet specific to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, despite what you hear on TikTok. Um, so just you know, uh, be careful what you're reading out there, um, but modifying carbohydrates sometimes can help in some patients. And then again, with exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, the enzyme supplementation alone is generally enough to really treat that symptom and dietary modification is generally not needed. So this is what I sit with my patients and they say, can I eat that? What can I eat? Diet is um, a big question for patients and primarily because most IBS patients perceive food as a trigger to their symptoms. So wanting to know we have to eat, we eat to live, eat to enjoy. We It's part of our social being and culture. And so food is very important to all of us. And certainly if food causes symptoms, um, individuals want to know what to do. So what do we have for diet for IBS? Well, you know, really for I've been doing this, you know, nutrition gig since the late 1980s, 1987, I think is when I formally became a registered dietitian. 
And we only had fiber, just eat more fiber, see you later for IBS patients. And it was really horrific. I actually hated when I saw a patient had IBS and that's what they were coming to see me because I really had nothing to offer. And over the last 10 to 15 years, things are changing and it's it's really exciting to see diet really emerging and interest in diet um, emerging. And so now we've got some we've got some research, we've got some studies looking at diet for IBS. And I want the next slide, don't get too nervous because it's very busy. But I'm going to go through some of these diets and what we know and, and what we're learning um, for diet for IBS and, and how to choose. So again, let me just kind of go through the diet itself, what it is, and what is some of the evidence. So the low FODMAP diet really is right now the most evidence-based. And what that means is we've got the most data on it. It doesn't mean that it's going to be the only diet that works and it's the best diet that will ever work for IBS. It just means right now, this is what we have. And the most studied diet is the low FODMAP elimination diet. It's a three-phase elimination diet that restricts a certain group of commonly malabsorbed carbohydrates, sugars, and fibers, including lactose and fructans and onion and garlic, and a number of foods found in really found these sugars and fibers are found in many everyday foods. But the evidence is really, um, you know, somewhat compelling in a recent systematic review that reviewed 13 eligible randomized control trials. They found that the low FODMAP diet ranked first versus any of the other interventions, habitual diet or other dietary interventions that were, were measured up against it. Um, so very good evidence, um, but I think it's just the beginning. And so we're learning even more. The FODMAP gentle is a more kind of a FODMAP light approach to, to the low FODMAP elimination diet. It's a more liberal restriction of FODMAP carbohydrates. So we're, we're only really eliminating maybe one or two or three items from the diet and assessing how the patient does. And this has not been formally studied yet. Um, I believe there may be some trials looking at this, this diet, um, but in clinical observation and in practice, it seems to work pretty well in the right patient. The other diet that we're looking at is the traditional NICE guidelines. These are out of the United Kingdom. And in brief, this is not the full sort of scope of, of, the, of the, the guidelines, but in general, it encourages eating three meals, no skipping, limiting fruit to three per week, per day, restricting foods with excess sorbitol, like stone fruits, avocado, if diarrhea is present, Sorbitol is commonly malabsorbed. It's actually a FODMAP subtype and pulls water into the gut. Adding flaxseed meal if constipation is present and limiting like wholemeal grains, like whole bran from, from wheat, reducing alcohol, fizzy drinks, they call that in the UK, or carbonated drinks as we call them in the US, and coffee and tea. And in one interesting study recently, there's been a couple that have measured the low FODMAP diet compared to the NICE guidelines. And the NICE guidelines tend to run a little less effective in symptoms compared to the low FODMAP diet. But in this one recent study comparing the gluten-free diet, a low FODMAP diet, and these traditional dietary uh, NICE guidelines found that they had similar symptom benefit for IBS patients, but the NICE guidelines cost 
less to purchase and implement. It was easier to grocery shop as well as easier to integrate into the lifestyle. So some really positive pros for, for trying the traditional NICE guidelines. More recently, the Mediterranean diet um, has been looked at to see if it um, modifies IBS symptoms. And one study showed similar response rates to the Mediterranean diet compared to a low FODMAP diet and a gluten-free diet. But again, patients preferred this dietary choice. And some of the key features of the diet, it's a very rich plant-based diet. It's not vegan. It's not vegetarian. It includes moderate fish and some beef but mostly um, fruits, vegetables, minimally processed grains. Extra virgin olive oil is very rich in polyphenols. And all of these plant-based foods are rich in plant chemicals that can modify the gut microbiome. And they believe that's part of the benefit of this particular dietary pattern. It's been shown in numerous studies to reduce cancer and heart disease risk. And this is, I would say, keep an eye on this Mediterranean diet because I think we're going to hear more and more about it and its potential benefit for patients with IBS. Fiber, again, we've been talking about this since the late, you know, probably 1970. Um, different fibers will have different tolerance. FODMAP foods like fructans and galactooligosaccharides found in beans, so onion, beans, garlic, wheat, those tend to be poorly tolerated in wheat, but in IBS. But there are a number of fibers um, that can um, be increased in the diet. Oat fiber tends to be well tolerated in patients. And then from supplements, psyllium husk has excellent data to support its use in IBS and really should be one of the first line treatments to trial um, before we muck around with the whole, whole diet, in my opinion. Most Americans consume about 16 to 18 grams of fiber. So we are a little shy on fiber. Um, the goal for most adult women, 25 grams per day and 38 grams for men. And then lastly, the diet, the data for a gluten-free diet, which includes, um, really excludes wheat, barley, and rye because these are the gluten-containing grains, um, the gluten is a protein in these grains. And the vast diet, uh, scientific data really shows that the gluten-free diet does offer some benefit, but likely due to the reduction in these FODMAP fructans that are found also in wheat, barley, and rye. And there may be a subset of patients that truly benefit from gluten restriction, but it doesn't seem to have as great efficacy as the low FODMAP diet. So I'm going to briefly go through the low FODMAP diet um, from start to finish, since right now this is the best we have. Um, it, if you do the full uh, elimination diet, three-phase elimination diet, the first phase involves eliminating all high FODMAP foods from the diet and subbing in low FODMAP alternatives. Patients really should be educated by a registered dietitian when possible with expertise in this diet as it's very nuanced and really provided education tools to help them grocery shop, label, read, menu plan, and eat a balanced diet. Um, both FODMAP friendly and Monash University have certification um, labels on various food products at the grocery store, Char, Fodi, uh, a number of Green Valley yogurt, a number of products have these labeling if they have certified foods that makes the shopping a lot easier for patients. And I always remind my patients that if the diet changes, if they're getting too perfectionistic, very hypervigilant with their diet, just a reminder that if it's too stressful, it's really not going to be beneficial. So just a reminder, 
you know, you don't have to be perfect with this. Just do the best you can. The second phase, we determine sensitivities to FODMAP. So we've got your symptoms settled, hopefully. And then we slowly reintroduce these various FODMAP subtypes to see what FODMAPs may be the contributors to the symptoms. Not everyone is sensitive to every FODMAP subtype. In fact, that's highly unusual. So we want to make sure um, that we test each group and only restrict those that are problematic or triggering symptoms. So the last phase is when we personalize the diet and we add back the foods that are well tolerated onto the plate. In this example, mannitol was a past test. So button mushrooms get back on and we can add some milk if lactose is not a problem. And as a reminder, you've really got to get got to let go of the long list. Once you've learned what the low FODMAP diet entails, even after, and I see this with multiple patients that I've worked with, even after they've gone through the reintroduction, they remember that watermelons on the list or peaches, and they restrict those foods long-term. And that's never, ever a good idea. You've got to let go of this long list of FODMAPs and start reintroducing the best, um, the best you can and, you know, keep it to your personal targets and, and not keep that list in the back of your mind. A more flexible approach to the low FODMAP diet is called the FODMAP gentle. And as I mentioned, this hasn't been really studied in a research setting at this time, but it is done in clinical practice and I do find it quite helpful. So we're only restricting the highest FODMAP foods that are very present in the patient's diet. So in, in a case, I have a couple quick scenarios working with a Starbucks barista that was drinking a lot of soy lattes. The soy milk in America is made with the whole soybean, uh, primarily all of them. There may be one brand that is not the case. And so this particular um, young woman with IBS had noted an uptick in her gas and bloating. So simply changing to almond milk from the soy in her lattes that she was enjoying a few of that adjustment was just enough to reduce that, that gas and bloating that she was experiencing. Another ins, uh, uh, example is an elderly woman that was drinking a lot of apple juice and taking applesauce to swallow her pills. And just her IBSD was flaring and just modifying those two products, apple juice and applesauce, which are rich in two different types of FODMAP subtypes, was enough to calm her symptoms to a level that was acceptable to her. So it does not have to be this overly restrictive diet, and it's really important. And why that's very important is that we're seeing that a lot of individuals with GI conditions have the data is emerging, so I don't want to label this, but that we're seeing a connection with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is an, a feeding or eating disorder that is associated with fear of consequences of eating, such as GI symptoms or sensory aversion. Things just don't feel well in their in their in when they're eating or lack of interest. And um, we've also seen data suggesting that disordered eating is more prevalent in people with GI disease. Upwards of 23% of people with GI disease have been shown to have some level of disordered eating. So whether you're an individual listening with IBS or you're a clinician, 
Any weight loss of 5% or more over one month is concerning inadequate nutrient intake, elimination of food groups that have no medical indication to be removed or all enjoyed foods, social interactions or moods or activities of daily living negatively affected by diet. Um, These are all concerning and you want to just make sure that you're screening your patients if you're a practitioner listening and for patients ask for help because you do not need to live this way. And disordered eating can turn into an eating disorder, which is life-threatening. So I'm going to wrap up my talk with um, a few points. Food is a well-known perceived trigger in IBS occurring in up to 84% of individuals, and most patients desire diet therapies. Remember, the least restrictive diet is always the goal, especially um, we do not want to, you know, up the risk of disordered eating or eating disorders. While low FODMAP has the most evidence, these other diets are emerging with some excellent uh, emerging data. So keep an eye on the ball here because I think we're going to see more diet trials that are maybe less restrictive than the low FODMAP diet. Reminder, the elimination phase of the low FODMAP diet is not forever. Please go through the other two phases and liberalize your diet as much as possible. Um, Diet therapy should allow for a fuller life, not a more restrictive one. And if you don't see any improvements despite using a variety of IBS treatments, this is when you discuss that IBS, maybe an IBS mimicker might be at play. Discuss it with your treatment team and never self-diagnose. Stay subscribed for more bonus content and an all-new episode of the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast each month. Be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guests and encourage you to join in on the conversation. Find our latest webinars on our website at TuesdayNightIBS.com. In addition, check out both of our pages on Facebook and YouTube at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversations about these important topics. See you next month.